From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats. I'm your host, Kate Young. I saw this old fellow passing out something, and he called me over and he said, Hey, Sonny, he said, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? And I said, sure. On our show this week, we're exploring ancient varieties of wheat, in particular, Kamut. Eric Shedler of Muddy Fork Bakery shares why he likes to use it in pizza dough, and we'll hear more about the grain itself from the authors of a book called Grain by Grain, a quest to revive ancient wheat, rural jobs, and healthy food. That's all just ahead, so stay with us. Let's get started with a trip out to Muddy Fork Bakery, located just east of Bloomington, Indiana. Eric Shedler is co-owner and master baker at Muddy Fork. Okay, today we are gonna make some pizza, and we'll start with the dough. This is gonna make one pound of dough. See, we'll make like one large pizza, or what we're gonna do today is make two small pizzas. And this dough is gonna have a mixture of three kinds of flour, water, a little bit of olive oil, and the yeast and salt. So we're gonna start by measuring the water and hydrating the yeast. So we need 180 grams of water. For the yeast, I use very little yeast in pizza dough because I use an overnight process where the dough will let it rise or ferment today during the day and then we'll form our dough balls and let them sit overnight in the fridge. And you don't want them to get super puffy during all that time, so we'll use quite a bit less yeast than we would with um, any other dough. And that'll just slow down the process. Yes, that's right. We want your dough to come out of the fridge the next day very relaxed and easy to stretch, but not so puffed up that it collapses. We're using a quarter gram of yeast, which is about a quarter of a quarter teaspoon, (laughs) because we have a standard conversion of a quarter teaspoon to one gram. So mix that little, little bit of yeast. And it's going to go very slow and long. And what is the benefit of the longer fermentation process? You do get really nice flavors developing when you let your dough go for a whole day. You get more of those organic acid compounds that we describe that as savory flavors, fermentation flavors. And with the pizza dough, it's just so much easier to stretch out the dough after it has relaxed overnight. And we'll get to see that at the end of the show. So we've got our water, our yeast, then we're gonna put our 13 grams of olive oil in here. Bakers describe recipes in terms of percentages, what we call baker's percentages. If you're a mathematician, they might, they might irritate you because it adds up to more than 100%. <laughs> but the way that bakery recipes work is the flour counts as 100%. And then everything else is relative to the flour by weight. So in this case, the olive oil is 5%. Is all-purpose flour, 20% is whole grain spelt, and 20% is whole grain kamut. So 155 grams of the all-purpose. 50 grams of the kamut flour, which is this beautiful golden yellow color. 
I love working with Kamut. It's the most different of the wheats and can be challenging, especially when you're trying to form loaves that you hope will rise up tall. Um, but it is interesting and it's got a very mild, almost sweet flavor to it. And here's the spelt, which is a more reddish brown color like whole wheat. And that's gonna give the dough a really nice extensible quality to it. And I'll add the salt, four grams, which is a scant teaspoon. I'm just gonna briefly stir the flowers together. And then we're gonna add the flour to the water and oil. Now both Kamut and Spelt have this quality of coming together more quickly uh, than modern wheat. So with that 40% ancient grains in there, you can see the dough immediately become somewhat cohesive. Noticing your primary tools are a nice, sturdy wooden spoon and a plastic Bowl dough scraper. scraper? Bowl, Bowl scraper. scraper? Yeah. Bowl scrapers are great. That's also a really good cleaning tool. Mm-hmm. Anything that's doughy, just get it a little bit wet and then scrape off the dough. Okay, so now we're mixing or kneading the dough just a little bit. We're using this motion of pulling the edge of the bowl, a little piece of dough, pushing it down into the middle and spinning the bowl. And we're just going to do this for a couple minutes until the dough is, uh, until the ingredients in the dough are evenly distributed. So I don't want to see streaks of one kind of flour or dry or wet streaks in the dough. That is a pretty sticky dough. It is at this point, but it will change as it sits. It'll become smoother, it'll become stiffer as those grains hydrate. That's mixed enough. All right, so I'm just gonna scrape down the loose bits of dough from the sides of the bowl down into the main piece of dough and set that aside with a piece of plastic over the top. We left the covered dough alone for a while at room temperature on the kitchen counter. All right, it's time to come back to our pizza dough. It's been uh, fermenting away in the corner for a few hours, and uh, we want to make pizza tomorrow. So we prepare the dough today. We let it ferment for three hours, a good amount of time, and then we're going to make it into a ball and put the ball in a bag and put that in the fridge overnight. And then tomorrow it will be super easy to stretch out. One of the interesting things that we do in our bakery is with any of our doughs that have a a good amount of whole wheat in them or a wheat family grain, we like to shape them with water on the table instead of flour as the barrier that prevents sticking. So I'm going to just do that here. Turn that dough out. And every time I touch the dough, I dip my hand in a little bowl of water. I'm going to cut my two eight ounce pieces for two small pizzas. And then I get the table just a little wet. My fingers are a little wet and I shape that pizza dough into a nice tight ball. Let it rest on the seam. And then before I put them away in bags, I like to roll them in a rice wheat flour mix. 
I get them nice and coated in that. It'll still be sticky by the time you take them out because it can't breathe in there, but it will come off the bag. And that's it. Put them in the fridge to rest until tomorrow. We'll come back to make the pizza later on in the show. Next up, Alex Chambers interviews the authors of Grain by Grain, just ahead after a quick break. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Beacon Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Eric Shedler mentioned a couple of ancient grains he mixes in with all-purpose flour for Muddy Fork's pizza dough. To learn more about one of those grains, Kamut, we go to producer Alex Chambers. The story starts in an American airbase in Portugal. It's 1949, and there's a pilot from a farm in Fort Benton, Montana. He's chatting with another American who says, hey, check this out. I was just on furlough in Egypt. I got into one of those old tombs, not too far from the pyramids, you know, and I found something. Here. And he drops 36 seeds into the pilot's hand. The pilot grew up on a farm, so he knows it's wheat, but the kernels are a lot bigger than he's used to. He mails them to his father back home. His father plants them. 32 of them come up. He replants their seeds, and in a few years, he has bushels. A local mailman gets a hold of some and starts passing it out to all his customers, calling it King Tut's Wheat. Bob Quinn was a teenager at this point, growing up on a farm in the 1960s. One day, he went to a county fair in Fort Benton. And I saw this old fellow passing out um, something, and he called me over and he said, Hey, Sonny, he said, would you like some of King Tut's wheat? And I said, sure. poured this handful of grain in, in my hands, and it was giant. It was about three times the size of, of the wheat I was familiar with growing on our farm. And the story was that it came out of a tomb in Egypt, and that was quite a novelty, and everybody kind of wowed over it, but um, nobody did anything with it, uh, past being a novelty, and I pretty well forgot about it. Until years later, that is, when it would give Bob new insights into how modern wheat might be affecting people's health and help him transform the farm economy of north-central Montana. Bob started out as a strong believer in chemical farming. He even got a Ph.D. in plant biochemistry. But then he went back to the family farm, and he's been farming organically for 30 years. He served on the first National Organic Standards Board, and among other things, he started a company that sells that ancient wheat, which he calls Kamut. Maybe you've heard of it. Bob also has a book out called Grain by Grain that he co-wrote with Liz Carlisle. So I'm Liz Carlisle. I am also a Montanan. Left the state at 18, but found myself back there visiting with organic farmers. 
and now teach and write about sustainable agriculture. Because I bake a lot of bread, the part of the book that I was most interested in was the ancient wheat. But it turned out that Kamut can tell us a lot about the wheat we eat today, and how we farm, and even about jobs, rural economies, and multinational corporations. But first, I want to get back to the story of that strange ancient wheat. After the county fair, Bob forgot about it for years. Then one day, in grad school... I was eating a package of corn nuts, kind of just idly in the hall one afternoon, taking a little break. And on the back of the package, it said, corn nuts made with a giant corn. And I thought, ah, I wonder if corn nuts would be interested in a giant wheat. So I called them up. They were nearby Oakland. And they said, yeah, we might be interested in that. And I called my dad right away. And I said, Dad, see if you can find some of that old King Tut's wheat. And in a week or so, he said he'd found a jar in a friend of his basement. And we sent a couple tablespoons to corn nuts. And they loved it. And they said, wow, we'll take 10,000 pounds of this stuff. This is fantastic. And I said, well, I don't really have 10,000 pounds. I didn't want to tell him I didn't even have one pound. So he called his dad and said, plant it all. They planted two crops a year for a few years and got up to 50 pounds. He called corn nuts again, but the guy he'd talked to was gone and no one else was interested. And so we just put it in the shed. And there it sat till about 86 when we went to our first health food show in California. Where, out of the hundreds of people who walked by, only one showed any interest. But that one conversation led to a contract. From that, we planted the uh, whole 50 pounds on a half an acre. And 30 years later, we're up to 250 farmers all over Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, all organic, planting over 100,000 acres. So that's how it blossomed. And I had no idea it would do anything like that. But Bob still didn't really know where the grain came from. He knew it couldn't be from a 4,000-year-old tomb because it wouldn't have grown. So what was this wheat? It got clearer after he started shipping to Europe. At a food show there... I ran into a fellow from Egypt, and he invited me to Egypt. So he went to the Cairo Museum and took a look at the ancient wheat kernels that had been found in the tombs. It didn't look anything like his wheat. And so I was pretty dejected, because we'd been telling this story for 10 years or so. But he kept trying to figure it out. He took a trip to Turkey, and people recognized it there. They told him they call it camel tooth because the kernel has a kind of hump on it. They also said they call it the prophet's wheat. And I asked them why they call it the prophet's wheat. And they said, I said, does it have something to do with Muhammad? And they said, oh, no, no, not that prophet. You know, the one with the boat. And I asked them, I said, well, you mean Noah? And they said, oh, yes. This is the grain Noah brought with him on the ark. And I said, wow, that's a lot better story than my old tomb story. Although, you know, the tomb story is pretty good. In any case, after more sleuthing, he eventually figured out it was most likely a variety from the Khorasan region of Iran. He trademarked it as kamut, an ancient Egyptian term for wheat. The trademark meant that any farmer who used that name had to grow it organically. As the grain became more popular, people who usually had problems eating wheat realized they could eat kamut breads and pastas without their usual symptoms. And I was very curious to try to figure out why that was so, what was different, what we had changed. And um, we had a hard time finding researchers in America that was in, took seriously that this claim. Most of them said, oh, this is just all in their head. People say they can eat one thing or can't eat another. But in Italy, we found that a very great interest in this question. So they teamed up with researchers in Italy to see how rats were affected by diets of ancient versus modern wheat. And what they found surprised them. The rats eating modern wheat had a lot of inflammation, whereas the ones on ancient wheat had none. That was a big deal because inflammation is a factor in a lot of chronic disease. 
Then they did clinical trials with human volunteers and had similar results. And it wasn't just inflammation. The groups eating ancient wheat had much lower cholesterol than the ones with modern wheat, even the people who were on medication. So it was really an astonishing discovery. And it was so consistent that every single person had similar responses that it really gave us a brand new picture of what we had done to modern wheat and its breeding program that changed the gluten and changed uh, the yield potential and everything that we've been doing. And if that's the case, if ancient wheat really is better for us, Liz Carlisle thinks we should listen to that. Wheat is trying to tell us something. You know, this, this grain that we've had a longstanding relationship with in human societies, one of the first crops, really, that we developed in the way we understand a crop, um, it's trying to tell us something about what's wrong with the food system. From raising food with so many chemicals to taking out the nutrients and processing, even how we breed our crops. A lot of the food we eat comes from a very small number of crops. And that small number of crops are the ones that have been bred really intensively for just a couple of goals, high yield, and in the case of wheat, high low volume. But along the way, people weren't really paying attention to things like nutrition. And not just our bodily health, but the health of our land and local economies. Liz says in industrial agriculture, most of the money doesn't go to the farmer. It goes elsewhere in the supply chain, like the fertilizer and pesticide and seed companies and expensive machinery. At the other end of the food chain, it goes to the processor. So as a result, you have these areas of the U.S., you're in one yourself, where there's a lot of agriculture, but not very much money is actually staying in that community with the farmers or with the small businesses that farmers would support. Whereas with organic agriculture, essentially what I see is that instead of the money going to chemicals, the money is going to people. So why isn't everyone switching to organic? Bob Quinn says it's partly because, for so many farmers, converting to organic is a step into the unknown. It's a big risk, and there's very little support from the USDA. But there are cultural pressures, too. Major multinational corporations make a lot of money off of the current system, and they don't have any real incentive to change. And also, I think, you know, in more nuanced ways in communities, they've been very sophisticated about getting their messaging out in rural America, but also in, you know, urban America where people eat and convincing people that they really have the best interests of the farm community and the American public at heart. Liz has seen some of the ways the major ag corporations have deliberately created a cultural divide. At farm conventions and in rural advertising, they tell farmers that organic agriculture is a project of urban environmentalists and foodies who don't understand what's happening in farm country to insult and discount and disrespect the hardworking family farmer. And so, this messaging goes, it's really the chemical companies that have the farmer's interests at heart, understand what they're going through on a daily basis, and are going to provide them the tools they need to deal with their problems. Still, Bob and Liz are both optimistic. Bob's had more calls in the last 18 months from farms wanting to convert to organic than in the last 30 years. And Liz says that addressing the issues in our food system is helping us achieve human potential. And really becoming what we're capable of in terms of the way we can care for each other and live in community and also steward and care for the rest of the planet. You can learn more about Kamut wheat and its role in the health of soil and local communities and some of the new research on ancient versus modern weed and how it affects our bodies in Bob Quinn's and Liz Carlisle's book, Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. It was pretty fascinating. We've got a link on our website. 
That story comes to us from producer Alex Chambers. Muddy Fork, they bake their bread in a large wood-fired brick oven. It gets fired up once a week and holds heat for days. On the day I visited, the oven was too cool for pizza, so we headed up the driveway to Eric's house to finish the pizzas. On the walk up, we talked about sourcing local cheese. It's called Ludwig Farmstead, mm-hmm. and it's a place in Fithian, Illinois, which is not that far from Indianapolis. We met those people at the Indy Winter Market. And they make some really good heart cheeses that you can get in round town at Blooming Foods. Um, and they also make a really great fresh mozzarella that we get from them all summer long for oh, our nice. market pizzas. Nice. And it just has this great curd to it. It's so firm and stretchy and when it melts, it's got the perfect texture. Eric's wife, Katie, and their youngest daughter, Ruthie, had just gotten home. You might hear Ruthie in the background. All right, so we're going to make some pizza sauce to put on those pizzas. And this is how we do it for market. It's mostly just tomatoes. And at this time of year, go for canned whole organic tomatoes. So we've got a quart of tomatoes going in the food processor. Include the juice. And then we'll put in half a teaspoon of salt and a half a teaspoon of honey and herbs and half a tablespoon of olive oil. And right now I have some frozen, I call it (laughs) pre-pesto. I I harvested lots and lots of basil in summer and processed it just with olive oil. So that's going to be my uh, olive oil and my herbs. And then you froze it? I froze it, yes. I'm just going to put a nice scoop of that in there. There we go. Smells like pesto with all that basil on it. So one of my favorite things to put on pizza is kale and garlic. And just take and strip the leaves off of the stems and toss it in eh, a generous amount of olive oil and salt and put it right over the top of your pizza as thick as you can get away with. And I'm gonna pour over some olive oil and sprinkle some salt on it. It's a little messy, but the best way is to massage it in. The kale kind of wilts from the salt and the oil. And I can just eat a bowl of it like this. (laughs) All right, that's good. Okay, I'm gonna chop some garlic. We're gonna throw it on with the kale that we prepared onto this pizza. Okay, so I'm taking this pizza dough out of the fridge and out of the bag. I'm just going to dump it into our little container of rice flour and get both sides of it nice and coated. 
And I've already put some rice flour onto the peel. And I'm gonna stretch this out right here on the peel. And I'm just using gravity a little bit to stretch out the dough, holding it from different angles and draping it over my hands. It's a very gentle process of tugging. And when you let your dough relax overnight, it really just stretches itself. That's hardly any work. And there we go. I'm going to stick it on the peel. This is a half pound of dough, so it makes a little, oh, medium, medium small pizza. And we have, start with some of that sauce that we made. Put a couple spoonfuls of that on the pizza and spread it around. I notice you're going kind of light on the sauce. Yeah, I don't like to put too much of anything on a pizza because you don't want to make your pizza too heavy. Next is cheese. And I told you about the Ludwig, Ludwig Farmstead mozzarella that we love using. So we're going to rip up a little bit of that and put it on the pizza. You could also just use grated cheese. Yes. It's traditional to rip it up, but um, actually for when we're making, you know, 20, 25 pizzas at a farmer's market, we just grate it ahead of time because it reduces the work on site. Then we've got our kale, and I really do mound up the kale because it disappears as it cooks. It shrinks a lot. And it's so light, it's not going to weigh down the pizza. Right. And then put that garlic over the top, more or less, depending how much you like garlic. And then we go into a hot oven on your pizza stone or leftover fire bricks. You want to get your oven as hot as it goes. For most of us, that's 500 degrees Fahrenheit. But some ovens do get hotter. Using a preheated pizza stone helps hold the heat and can give your pizza a crispy bottom crust. Eric has some leftover fire bricks from when they built the bakery oven. He puts those in his home oven for baking pizza or pita bread. The pizzas will bake for about 10 minutes. Just keep an eye on them. Look for a browning crust and bubbling cheese. Now we gotta try this pizza. Mmm. Gosh, that kale is so amazing. <laughs> Sweet winter kale. Yeah, the crust has so much flavor and it's really crunchy on the outside. And then where all the cheese and the kale and everything is, it's soft. Oh, it's just delicious. Thank you so much, Eric. Oh, you're welcome. You might have to wait until summer to sample some of Muddy Fork's pizza, but you can find them with bread, pastries, and granola at the Bloomington Winter Farmers Market every Saturday throughout the winter. The market has a new location at the Switchyard Park Pavilion on South Rogers. Find more information and the recipe for Muddy Fork's pizza dough at eartheats.org. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. Thanks for listening. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Alex Chambers, Bob Quinn, Liz Carlisle, Eric Shedler, and everyone at Muddy Fork Bakery.
Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at griffeycreek.studio.